Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson, and on today's pod we meet Otis Williams, the founder and now only surviving member of the original lineup of the Motown legends, The Temptations. But first, appropriately enough, I'm delighted to welcome the first lady of house, Kim Mazell, who as a child lived two doors down from the Jacksons in Gary, Indiana. Her first UK top 10 hit was with Dr. Robert from the Blow Monkeys, and having worked with Norman Cook, she signed to Parlophone Records. And they had a string of hits, including Love Me the Right Way, No More Tears, Enough is Enough, Give Me All Your Loving, and Young Hearts Run Free. In 1990, Kim joined Soul to Soul, and her distinctive vocals are central to the band's second album. I asked him about growing up in Midwest America. Oh my gosh, I was born and raised in Gary, Indiana, home of the Jackson 5, two doors down. I lived just on the same road as Steel Town Records, which was the uh, Jackson's first label where they recorded uh, Big Boy, uh, Michael the Lover, and a few more other songs uh, like that that weren't um, released yet until after Barry Gordy found them. My dad worked as a community leader and, and things like that, and music and community was always a part of my life. And how did you get into music? Was it via church or singing at home? Mostly by singing at home along to records. I did go to church in the early days, but I wasn't really a church goer. Even, you know, I was too loud, a little bit like uh, Tina Turner, if you saw the film where she was a little girl, just, could you be quiet and calm down? Well, that was me. I was kind of the same. So um, I listened to a lot of music at home. My parents had a great collection from Curtis Mayfield to um, a lot of the early crooners, which I can't think of all their names right now, but I listened to a lot of music. I grew up on um, FM radio from Chicago, WLS as well, which is where I started to listen to rock and roll at a young age. People like Janis Joplin, Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, uh, Deep Purple. Um, uh, as a young person, too, my mom just was like, what is she listening to? So I listened to a lot of different stuff. Helen Reddy, Angie Baby, um, Ricky Lee Jones, a lot of different people. It's a tremendous range, and I think people will be surprised by so many rock records in there. But you mentioned <laughs> Two Doors Down, and there's a song, of course. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah Dolly yeah, Parton. Yeah. <laughs> but you Two Doors Down from the Jacksons. So did you know the Jacksons? I was young, so my um, knowing and dealing with them was pretty much sat on the front porch next to Michael in between rehearsing, probably sharing ice cream or bubble gum. From, you know, with kids, take, you take your bubble gum out your mouth, and yeah, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. And my mom was a local barber, so she cut their hair. And, and his, um, his grandparents were very close with my mom. Um, his grandfather, his mother's father. So we kind of like knew them and his uncle worked with the local mayor and they all came to my mother's barbershop. So that would have been um, early days and then just running out in the middle of the street as soon as you hear the guitar uh, plug in. So I love that haircuts by appointment to Kim Mazel's <laughs> mum. Yeah. Was yeah. there any inkling at that point that they'd be as big as they became? Yeah, they, they, we, we knew uh, even, even in my, my, my mind as a child, I mean, they were young, but they were polished and they had that sort of sound. And Gary, Indiana was full of nightclubs, full of uh, live music. I mean, Jackie Wilson, uh, uh, Gladys Knight, the Pips, Diana Ross, everybody would come to Gary, B.B. King. Uh, um, everyone would come there to perform at one of the clubs or, or um, something like that. As a matter of fact, I believe um, it was Gladys Knight who discovered 
the Jacksons uh, in Gary and told um, Barry Gordy about them. And I, I remember this, as the story went, he always he thought Michael Jackson was a midget singing, <laughs> not a little boy. He's like, that's not, that's a grown man. That's a midget. Oh, he's really young, actually. <laughs> he's like, no, that's a midget. That's not. That is not a boy. But yeah, yeah. And I remember as a child, my perception for knowing that I would possibly be able to sing and want to sing from five, six years old was remember Michael was like no longer kind of down the street anymore or in the town anymore. But one day watching television, maybe American Bandstand, and he was inside of my TV. So in my mind, I was like, from there, you can go in there. So to me, I thought, if he can go just from there to the TV land, so can I. So that was my early thing that I held on to. I always remember that. Anything is day. possible. Yeah, to this day. I, I, I didn't even have the vernacular or anything was possible. I was just like, mm, mm, mm. yeah, you know. <laughs> That's the joy of youth, isn't it? Yeah, it's the joy of youth. <laughs> Podcast Radio. So, Kim, you're growing up in this amazing town with all these artists coming into town. Are you able to get to these gigs and see these artists like Gladys Knight and B.B. King and so on? Um, not as a kid, as I was five years old. And oh, you're young, yeah. <laughs> at, the, at that time, you know, I just know the history of it. But, but later on, I would... Um, I would come to go and see different uh, bands as I got older. I would go and see Parliament, uh, Funkadelic. I'd go and see Al Green. Well, I tried to see Al Green, but I was naughty that day. My what mom. happened? Uh, you were grounded? I, I was grounded. <laughs> what did you do, Kim? Oh, my gosh. I was grounded. I was, you know, there was a club in town that used to do like a talent show once a week. And, uh, you know, maybe I wasn't really old enough to go and, you know, my mom was like, no, you can't go and education and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I decided to sneak out the window <laughs> and go and sing anyway, you know, go to the club anyway and sing my favorite Chaka Khan song or whatever that I was learning. And um, yeah, so yeah, so I go and with my friends and we go to the club and I sing. I, I came in, um, I think I was a runner up, that, uh, another girl uh, on our block who was a bit older, she came in first place that night. Or did I win that night? I can't remember. But anyway, what I do remember is coming back home to go back into my bed through my window, only to find the window closed which means you had to knock on the door and you hadn't got a key on the door and mom knows that you you have gone against what she's told you to do so she must have been proud of you though winning um gosh no it it was not about any of that it was you know you don't dispute my words so uh and i snuck out the window and anything you know could happen you never know when you're going out yeah i had to do the dreaded knock on the door and my punishment was that i could not go and see Al Green now, which the Still In Love With You album was out. Amazing album. You know, as a teenager, my cousin was gonna come with me. The twist to this story, I couldn't see Al Green, is I'm sitting up all night at, on the front porch looking out, you know, that front window, and I'm crying because I'm like, oh, by now he's probably singing whatever song, and you know, just got my crush on him too, because, you know, young girl. But then I'm looking, and it's slightly raining, and I see this, limousine pull up a white limousine and I'm like wow that's strange I know the lady across the street she has two young children two girls and a boy she's a really beautiful lady actually she just moved uh, recently driver gets out opens her door she gets out and I'm like okay and who comes out the door on the other side 
Al Green. You're serious? I'm serious as a heart attack. And I thought to myself, well, I seen Al Green anyway. <laughs> Not in the way you expected. Not in the way that I expected, but I'll never forget that in my life. The universe put him right outside of my door. And I just sat there looking through the window going like, of course, it's years before uh, video cameras and phones and all this. This is like 75 or something like that. And I'm thinking, wow. Now, you went to college in Chicago. Well, I went to two schools in, in there. I went to an all-girls Catholic college first to study voice pedagogy, which is music education, to have a practical job in music because, again, my mom's thing was uh, to get education before you just go into music so you don't end up with... Um, Shattered dreams and nothing to fall back on and blah, 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 whatever, whatever. I'm, I, you know, I'm grateful for that now because it gave me other skills and different things. I was a young mom as well. I was a teenage, well, quite, not, about 18 when I had my daughter and I went to university and um, this school was an all-women's Catholic college, so I was able to take her with me to Mundelein for one year and do all of this amazing stuff by learning music theory and uh, singing opera and uh, practicing. Uh, I think I was in Tosca. I, yeah, I played like Tosca and Puccini and La Traviata and all these songs. This is a phase when I thought I was going to be Leotine Price or, or Jesse Norman or somebody. You know, I was thinking about that. But you did an internship at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, so opera was clearly something you were into at the time. This is true. I did. Do oh, you've been doing your homework. I did. I did an intern at Chicago uh, Lyric Opera House um, looking after the VIP guests, and I got a chance to sing in the Lyric Opera uh, Chorus behind Pavarotti. Really? Yes, did I you did. speak to him? I did speak to him. Oh my goodness, so more than Al Green this time I, then. I did, I did. Sp I spoke to him, I invited my mom and dad. What was the one that he was doing? Um, might have been Madame Butterfly or something like that, the one. Uh, I always remember he had his own personal chef. And it's all these background stories that was happening. Because I, my thing was to find out what happens in the background. Because you see the pretty picture. How does it all work? How does it all work? Yeah. You know, and I remember the uh, really consummate artist uh, that was supposed to sing with him. Another uh, female lead. I can't remember her name right now. Whatever. He had a young girlfriend that wanted to be a star. And he got rid of the prominent female lead and had this young girl. And I could hear the whispers. That's because he was so big, he had so much power. Yes, yes. So that was that. Was that. La Boheme. Yeah, and we had a little uh, group too with some of the other employees that worked at the Opera House called uh, Dress Circle, which is one of the seating places that you, we named it after Posh that. seats, aren't they? Yeah, 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 posh seats. So we named a group. And I've recently found a video of us performing. This is, would have been 85. We were like a new romantic kind of group. The guy had glitter, you know, he's trying to be like the British bands, you know, with all of the glitter and the makeup on. So. How does the Kim Mazzella of today critique the Kim Mazzella of those years ago? Um, I wasn't too bad, you know. Good. Yeah, I was really good. I was just doing like the backing vocal parts and, you know, I was, yeah. Yeah, I was pretty good. I was like a, yeah, it was good. So the house is obviously now a nod to you. You know, the first lady of house, that's who you are. Yeah. At that point, was house something you thought, wow, this is in my soul, this is in my blood at that point? 
at that point, because I was at university doing internships, Opera House being one, uh, DJ International Records became another one, which was the, one of the first house labels in Chicago. Uh, Daryl Pandy, Lolita Holloway, Sean Christopher, J.M. Silk. This is the development of house. I, I wasn't even looking at house to say, because it wasn't house. We, we, so I came in on the development of it as one of the creators of a new form. Uh, Marsha Jefferson has just done Move Your Body. I think that was just out. Frankie Knuckles had just moved to Chicago and was DJing at the warehouse in Chicago with Ron Hardy. Berlin on the north side was like this underground house place. It was like a, a gay club. I didn't know that. We didn't know what nothing was. Everybody was just having fun because you go to play music. And a lot of times you would go to test out your song through the DJ to see what the dance floor did. That's kind of like what, what was happening, kind of. And being uh, sort of like a secretary, um, coffee maker, <laughs> PA at DJ International Records with these different artists, I'd go to test their records. Uh, give it to a DJ, a cassette, or the acetate, the big, thick uh, wax record. Remember the acetate, remember yes, the yes. that just had something scribbled on it? Yeah. So we'd go and, and do that, and then if it worked, uh, someone would take it to the radio stations. Normally the radio guys were at the clubs too, Hot Mix 5. Yeah, so this was all bubbling uh, up, and I ended up doing this record called Taste My Love, with Marshall Jefferson, which we might, you know, play either. Uh, but it, it was by accident I got on there. I went to sing backing vocals. How did they know you could sing? Because, I mean, you were doing PA work and you were doing some, you know, some of the back office stuff and then suddenly oh. you're doing vocals. How did they know Kim had a voice? I was doing an internship because I was going to Columbia College to become a singer. But I was quiet about, like, singing because I wanted to learn what all these contracts were that these people were signing. They were like books. It was like 99 albums and your whole life. It was like, really? And the, the, the form of music wasn't even established yet. So I met a young uh, lawyer doing one of my um, interns. I, I did every intern in the music industry. If there was an internship to do with like a, a venue that played live music or a production company that presented live events, I mean, I would go just to learn. And one of the um, young attorneys that I met at the time, I, I was in confidence with him telling him, I really want to be a singer. And they were like, okay, so this happened that this guy, Marshall Jefferson, needed a singer. He was looking after Marshall. And he said, well, I'm working with this girl. Did you do uh, an audition or just go straight in? No, I just went straight to the studio. Wow. Yeah, we just went to straight to the studio. And he said, she'll do the BVs for you. And the How did you feel? I mean, that must have been quite a thing, you know, your first recording with Marshall Jefferson. I mean, you had confidence, but I mean, it's always that inside, you know, thing. Can I, can I do this? But obviously you, you did a great job. Yeah, it wasn't even thinking of Marshall. We were, nobody had a name. He was just as much of trying to figure it out as, as, as I was. You know, it was just like somebody give you a, a chance to go and do something. You turned up. It was like not a, a, as a, oh, I'm going in with Mick Jagger or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? Nobody had established really themselves. At least house wasn't a step. Nothing. It was just all on the precipice. So um, it was a chance to shape your dream. I've been following these breadcrumbs since Michael Jackson, you know, in this dream that I'm going to be a singer. But So I went and I'm listening, you know, 
and I had never sang any background vocals either. <laughs> I never like really recorded yet either. I'm just like, you know, baptism by fire, you know, just. But you swam. But I swam. I'm just giving it one, you know. I was like, okay, I heard it. I said, I could do that, you know. I, I could do that. And I went in and I nailed it. And they start playing. I was like, oh, it's really good. And the lead singer was having problems. And then they just said, you know what? They told her to leave. I didn't realize it. They said, you know what, Kim? You did the BV so well. We just wanted to see, try you on the lead. And I went and sang it, nailed it. Congratulations. Wow, what a great start. And that's how that started. That was my, that first song. And, and I ended up um, creating a label with that lawyer and one of the other people that I had met during internships that ran uh, promoted rock, uh, concerts uh, at a live venue in Chicago. And we called it Police Records. The song was called Taste My Love. And that was my label with the, those guys. We printed 2,000 copies of that and sort of got it to the uh, what they had called a DJ record pool back then and got the song put on there. And I, some we sold out the back of the car, some we got to Chicago DJs, and some, some kind of way got to New York. And that's where the Brits came in. East London Radio on Podcast Radio. This is Private Lives. I'm Paul Robinson. Kim Mazel is my guest. So before Bill Withers, who sadly is no longer with us, of course, we yeah. left it where the Brits have arrived in New York. So let's pick up the story. What happens next? Yeah. So, you know, we, we put some of the product out of these 2000 uh, records that we had pressed of Taste My Love. And little did we know there was some type of underground thing happening in Britain. We didn't even know nothing about Britain, really. And these DJs were coming to get this, our new form of music, house. They, I don't know how, but anyway, they got wind of it and they start coming to get records, loads of records. So uh, someone picked up my record, uh, Taste My Love. Um, it was being played all over the radio, unbeknownst to me, in Britain, in England. Well, some of the house artists had just come back from doing a big showcase tour in London, and I happened to be sitting at uh, Adonis, that was his name, at his house, and I saw the work permit, like on the table, and I read the work permit, and I see the name, you know, whatever the name of the company was, and I see this name, David Levy, on there, and, and I said, Adonis, can, can I like call this guy? Could you give me the number? Cause you guys are going out there. You know, I, I wanna go out there too, you know, be good, you know? And it's all guys, you know, that are going out to London, Farley, Jack Master Funk and that. And I'm not really aware of that they're coming and going already quite a few times, you know? So I get David Levy's number and I go back to my apartment in Chicago at the time and, and I give him a call. I didn't know time difference. Mm. I have no idea of anything in my life about whatever. I just see that's how he got there. That's the name. I'm going to call him. You're going to do it. I'm just going to call and see what happened. But we're seeing hang up and go, what, what, what? So I didn't know accents existed. You know what I mean? I didn't even know it was going to sound different. It was just like, really? And he picked the phone and I was like, hi, uh, blah, 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 blah. I said, my name's Kim Zell. Um, I just got your number from, uh, you know, this work permit, Adonis, blah, 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 blah. And he said, the Kimazelle that may taste my love. And I went, um, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. He said, do you know you have a number one record out here? 
do I was like, I do. I was like, what's that mean either? <laughs> but whatever. He's like, I'm calling because I like to come out there. He's like, you know, and I think they were putting together like a little house thing, 3X or something like that. So I gave him my number. We contacted and um, eventually I was brought out uh, to the UK to do like a showcase or to sing Taste My Love with Marshall. And uh, I came out with Frankie Knuckles, Marshall Jefferson and somebody else. Uh, and... Um, Okay, so when I get here, it's not glamour like I'm thinking. It's not Carnegie Hall. It's not in it. It's nothing. It's like uh, grunge. It's like this. It's like that. But I, I don't care. Because there was another young lady, actually, that they wanted to bring, and she said no. Who's that? I'm not going to tell her name. Oh, okay. I'm not going to tell her name because we were making like three to five grand a night in New York for a show. I'm going to have to figure that out. And they only offered us like 300 pounds to come. Okay. And she didn't want to come. Okay. And I came. Because I knew it would be a bigger opportunity than you're just looking at that. the big picture. I was looking at the big picture, so I came with the with the guys, and oh my gosh, it turned into being like a bidding war to sign me, I, and all of this different kind of stuff. I'm going to these different radio stations and blah blah blah. But at night, we're going to radio stations down dark alleys, and I'm like, what the heck is going? All on? our radio stations are down and, dark and, alleys. And don't tell anybody where you are. <laughs> But this is what was happening. These stations were something called pirate radio. Yeah. It was huge, particularly in London. Who knew? I'm thinking we're, we, we don't know nothing about, you know. And we're like, well, what? Why, why can't we say where we're going? As a matter of fact, one blindfolded us. It was, That's a bit spooky. It was like, okay, you got to cover your eyes. And I'll never forget Greenland Street. Greenland Street in Camden. It was Kiss FM. Kiss FM, yeah. Yeah, it was the first Kiss FM. We're happy to be on the radio. I'm still in university at this point, you know. Um, my daughter's like, I don't know, five years old. I'm at university. Um, I'm coming back. I'm flying to London. Uh, I'm studying. Uh, by this point, I'm at Columbia studying arts and entertainment, media management, so I can understand what goes on behind record labels and contracts. So hopefully I won't get ripped off like every other artist badly. Maybe I'll just get ripped off a little, <laughs> you know? So, so at this point, but then, you know, I get here, I'm in London and it's like 88, 89, 88, 89. Oh my God, this place is buzzing. Mm. Everything is illegal and underground, and I don't know that. I'm having the time of my life, and I don't even care. People are like, you want to come with us here? You want to? Yes, absolutely. Shopping, Dark Martin boots, Camden Market, uh, Portobello Market, all of these different clothes. Oh, Jimi Hendrix used to live there. Oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what is this? You know, just Soho. Uh, I don't think I slept. I just was like trying to, you know, uh, uh, they would call raves off like somebody would get a call from somewhere. No mobile, mobile phones. No, no, none of that. And this stuff could be organized in two hours mm. and jam packed DJs uh, uh, with big records. And, you know, because they played records then. So you see them coming with these big cases, heavy, like, I don't know what, full of 12 inches or whatever they got. Everything. People. Oh, my gosh. It was just the best. So. Yeah, so this happened. Uh, someone at the showcase um, got together a couple of days later. I spoke to Dwayne, who was my partner, and asked if I'd go in the studio and do a demo. If I make one song, you know, for them, give me a little budget. And uh, me and Marshall went in, and we ended up making two. 
uh, I'll never forget, we were at Matrix Recording Studio, which wasn't far from the British Museum. I know all of this in hindsight where I was. And uh, Nigel uh, owned the uh, Matrix Studio at the time. Uh, me and Marshall did two records. Uh, Cece Rogers was with us as well. We ended up writing two like demos. And uh, that's when EMI offered me a five album record deal, 500,000, whatever, you know, those deals were. That must have been amazing because EMI, you know, huge record company, five album deal. That's saying, you know, you've got a long term future. You must have been knocked out by that. I didn't even know what to do. I was like, um, is this good? You were thinking, <laughs> I was like, I, you know, is this going to tie me up, though? You know, because I'm already studying things and what's going to be in the papers and what are they writing? And are they going to tie me up for life? Because Rocky Jones had like ninety nine thousand album contract. You know, I just didn't really know, but I was very excited. And then they start to explain to me, um, you know, later, this would be the first time a house artist ever has a major deal worldwide. Um, you're the first lady. Da, da, da. The other on, only other artist that we signed here in the UK that was American to EMI in Britain at Manchester Square was Jimi Hendrix. So I'm finding out all You're these, in great I, company. I'm finding out all this history and I'm like, what? <laughs> sign, sign, so you sign, sign, sign it <laughs> on the dotted line. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a huge, huge deal, huge deal. Now, let's talk about Robert Howard because you recorded with Robert Howard from the Blow Monkey. Yes, yes, this came from this deal. Mm. This came from this EMI um, deal and people and connections. I never heard of the Blow Monkeys. I never heard of Dr. Robert. I didn't know. I knew Boy George, but I never. So I called my baby sister who was totally like uh, into punk and British music and all of this kind of stuff. I called her, I said, you ever heard of somebody called Blow Monkeys? She said, yeah, 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 yeah. Digging my scene. Digging my scene, she knew all that. She was like 14. I said, they want me to sing a song. You better go sing a song with them. Better not. You better go. I better go. You oh, better right. Go okay. And okay. Sing a song with them. You better go and sing a song with them. So I think the next day I was at Townhouse Records in uh, Shepherd's Bush. How am I remembering exactly where I was? It's impressive. I'm like, yeah, Townhouse Records and Shepherd's Bush. Yeah, and uh, every morning when I wake up, baby. And uh, yeah, I, I, when I heard that record, it was like House had gone pop. It was like they had the perfect formula of House, but it was polished. It was like... I was like, how did he do this? This guy is a genius. And I just said, I'm going to do like Aretha Franklin kind of singing on it or something. It was amazing. The record came out. I did my UK TV debut uh, with Dr. Robert on Top of the Pops, 1989. That's your first time on Top of the Pops. What was that like, that experience, Top of the Pops? It was pretty amazing because, you know, I was like, I know this is an important show here in the UK. I may not be able, because, you know, everything for me, I, I was trying to find out how it, where the level was in, in, in relationship to what it was if it was in America, so I could kind of understand. But you had to record the track on Wednesday and then mime it, and it went out on Thursdays. <laughs> yes, That's it, how it worked. Yeah, yeah, basically, basically, it was bam, bam, bam. You had no time to, you know, whatever. And I was like, something told me, I said, this must kind of be like American Bandstand then. And it was of that level. Without Ed Sullivan. Without Ed Sullivan, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is something like that. So let's discuss the outfit for Top of the Pops. What did you do? I wore all leopard. <laughs> oh. As you do, all leopard print. It was um, 
where did we go for that Covert Garden? They took me to Covert Garden because I got to meet all these really cool people. Kim Bowen uh, was like a stylist. Um, and uh, Kate Gardner was a photographer. It was just like really, everybody was really in their element of being young and, and artsy and and just just amazing, you know? So yeah, so leopard, all leopard. Headband, leggings, body top, jacket, shoes, all leopard print. Well, they play those old Top of the Pops on the BBC occasionally. We must check that out then, that's uh, Top of the Pops it, with Kim Mazzell and the Leopard. Absolutely, and it's out there actually, it's out there, it's out there. You are now onto a roll, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm commuting from Chicago. Uh, it's a long commute. To London. At this time, I'm back and forth. It's what, an 11-hour flight or and something? back yeah. and forth. Not the best plans. You know, it was, you know, we, there were some hiccups in some of the things. I would be like, this record's going to be a hit. You need to keep me here. No, we don't know yet. We're going to wait. You know, there was literally one incident where I got back to Chicago, went to my flat, turned on the old-school answer machine. They said, okay, you were right. The record is going to be a hit. Get back on the plane. Come right back to London. Now, literally, don't even unpack. They were like... We've, your tickets at the airport we've already and I was like okay and then you get off the plane somebody picks you up you have to go straight into makeup straight into yeah it was so they didn't today have jet lag or relax yeah it was really a hard kind of like in some terms but you must like have been that. loving it you're a young woman you know you're in demand you're meeting all these people I, it must was, have been amazing still, it was amazing I was still tired but then they they did uh, makeup they got me um, hotel room for like a couple of months uh, my first tour, we sold out immediately uh, eight nights at Wembley Stadium. Eight nights at Wembley, that's a big deal. Can you imagine? Like, that's huge. Eight nights at Wembley Stadium, I opened up for Alexander O'Neill. Oh, wow. Wow, what a great gig that would be. Alexander yeah. O'Neill and Kim Mazzell. Oh, my God, it was amazing. It was amazing. We sold out uh, Wembley. We sold out GMAX. We sold out NME or NEC or CNE. Or NEC. NEC. NEC Birmingham, yeah. NEC Birmingham. We just went everywhere, and it just sold out. It was just, I had my own, you know, live band, and then we toured out to Europe, Kim Mazzell and Tin City, because we were like the early house acts. We actually were the, the, the blueprint, you know, for performing live or with the band, house music. We played the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1989. Wow, that's, that's Can you something. imagine that? Claude Nobbs had this, like, vision of the house's next, or I, I, I don't know what kind, he was some kind of genius in his own right. And, uh, yeah, we, we played uh, Berlin. I remember touring Berlin on the tour bus. The wall was still up, and we got off the bus to get, you know, the driver had to get petrol, and we're kids. You're jumping out to go to the bathroom, see what things are in Germany, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You were coming back to get back on the bus to go to Berlin or whatever side we had to go to, and the Gestapo was there with guns. They pulled us all out of the tour bus, lined us up in a row, and said, your documents. Scary. It was really scary because what we didn't know is that you weren't really supposed to go outside of the, 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 uh, the bus and go in because at that time people would hide in cars and go over To there. try and get across the border, well, yeah. We wouldn't, we don't know about what border, what's wrong with the border? What, you know, we're just going over to play some house music. So that was, but they were very polite to us and uh, we just, but I think we were just kind of shaking in our boots because we didn't know what was going on. Well, it's a piece of history now because obviously the wall's not there. So, you know, you've experienced something that kids today can't. Yeah, this is true. And we went back when the wall was coming down. I, I took a brick 
Oh, you've got a brick? I've got a brick. Oh, wow. From East London to the whole of London on podcast radio. We are East London Radio. How can I make you love me the right way? Boy, does that have a story. That master's tape ended up somewhere in Italy. I don't know how. I originally wrote that with Leon Ware. Um, and it ended up somewhere with some Italian girls. And, uh, and they ended up giving the tape to these guys. Rapid Nation. Or they got it out of the studio. They ended up remixing it. And ended up in London with the British manager. And he called and said... I think we're going to be in trouble. I think these are your vocals that we've mixed on here. They called uh, the record company that I was with or the manager. And I, I think that we're going to be in trouble. This is Kim Azell's vocals. So they called. I went, listened to it. They had done a fantastic remix. I said, fair enough. Let me add some little bits and bobs. Give me, um, we, you, you, you know, we took care of the business side of it, et cetera, et cetera. And I should have just made it a Kim Azell record because they didn't really deserve the right for me to put their name on it but I put their name on it anyway and uh yeah I love me the right way we did that song it was great we went to top of the pops and I yeah it's great <laughs> Paul Robinson with the greatest guests on private lives so Kim yeah. Mazel's my guest let's talk now about soul to soul Camden Lock I was performing at Dingwalls the famous Dingwalls the famous Dingwalls yeah. one night I was promoting uh the the crazy album that I did with EMI, um, Useless, and all those songs got to get you back. And I was promoting this song and singing, and you know, you sang late at night, so it must have been about three in the morning when I finished, and um, a guy was on the side of the, because uh, you sang behind the DJ booth with the microphone, it wasn't no big fancy anything, you know, and that was just it. They, I think they still do it that way now. Yeah, they places. do. Then this really funky, funky little white boy, I was like, okay. All right, let me see who this is. All right. And then the guy says, uh, Kim Zell, this is, I'm Jazzy B. Wow. And uh, this is my friend Nellie Hooper. And uh, we want you to come and blow a tune. So I said, okay, who's Jazzy B? Because I didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, da 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 da, soul to soul. And then I was like, oh yeah, okay. And we go to the studio at about three or four in the morning and they start playing the backing track. And I'm listening to it, and I just start writing. You're the sweetest. And I just start writing, and I just start writing. And before I, I know it, I've written this melody and these lyrics, me and Jazzy. I go behind the microphone, and the song came out just the way it is on the recording. Just like that. I've never done anything like that. I think that song had been in me all the time. And because of this night was so magic, I mean, all the funky dreads were there. Jazzy B, HQ, uh, Dede Harvey, Nellie Hooper was there. It was just like the whole collective from Soul to Soul. The studio was all booked out for them. I was writing Missing You in one room. Nellie Hooper was in the other room remixing Nothing Compares to You for Sinead O'Connor. Wow. Down the hall, he was doing two remixes. He was also remixing Ghetto Heaven for Family Stand. So this went on this night that I was in. The it's a star-studded night. This was like, wow, the energy. It was like so much energy in that place. It was like the collective, a happy face, a thumping bass for a loving race. And I love I'll, that line. Say it again. A happy face, a thumping bass love that. for a loving race. It was just like uh, 
really, really amazing. Can you imagine? I, I remember hearing Nelly remixing that Nothing Compares to You thing, and I was like, wow, this, all of it. Because they had that rhythm. Remember that Soul to Soul one drop kind of beat? It kind of lended itself from maybe a Barry White child. It could have been a child of Barry White or something mixed with some fusion of some kind of reggae or some kind of uh, something like this. I was like, wow, yeah, Soul to Soul missing you. And that song and that whole album were massively successful, Soul to Soul. Massive. That's what we did, our world tour. 1990, a new decade. We did that world tour. It was amazing. We, we had taken over the world, and there's no other feeling like that. You, you just really can't compare. I mean, every door in every country was open for the music. The music was fresh from the first album to the second album. The sound was amazing. It opened up like uh, uh, black British culture because a lot of yes. people had not yeah. heard um, that black people had accents. So, you know, they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you sound British. Well, that's where I'm from. You know, <laughs> people couldn't get their heads around that in different places. And then here I was, American, they're like, you don't sound like <laughs> I said, mind your business. <laughs> Don't you worry about what me sound like. Mind your business. How do you keep yourself together when you're on such an incredibly in, a punishing schedule, really? Um, I think I drank. <laughs> okay, that's a great answer. <laughs> What's your favorite tipple? I think back then, I was finding out a lot of things from England. I had, I had gotten on to um, port. Oh, that's very, that's very British, yes. Yeah. Normally drunk at the end of a meal. Well, I, I was drinking it for breakfast, lunch, whatever. And it really helped with my vocals. I do port and aspirin. Oh, that's a good idea, because it's I, quite thick, isn't it? I do port and aspirin. I start to meet everybody. Mm. Everybody. I worked with Mick Jagger on the Wandering Spirit album. What was he like? He was amazing. He fancied me. But, oh, you know, did he? Good taste, good taste. He was really lovely. He was, like, really lovely, you know. Uh, he gave me a lot of different advice about different things. But like you, a hard worker. Oh, he was def definitely a hard worker. Like one time I remember I was um, really tired and I said, I can't do this session right now. I'm so tired. And it wasn't scheduled properly either. But he said, one thing you mustn't do is not turn up for sessions. You have to go. Now, you've got a new album out, which in fact is the EMI Years. And it's a fantastic yes. album. So let's plug the album. Yes, yes. Now that we're in 2020 and there's all these different uh, ways to put out music, there's different places like Apple Music, mm. Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music and iTunes have come together and uh, during this time of uh, quarantine, I thank them, they've put out uh, the EMI Years of Kim Mazzell on all of these different uh, download outlets. And it's a great collection. And it's a great collection. It's called Kim Mazzell, Woman of the World. Woman of the World is a song I sang in a BBC One soap opera that I was an actress in. <laughs> I mean, this life. You've done everything. I mean, Britain, I love you, England. We love you like cook food. Well, I tell you what, we've sort of run out of time and we've had our hour and I can't believe it's been an hour, <laughs> but we have to end another song that is such a big hit for you and which you're so associated with, which is Young Hearts Run Free. Ah, Young Hearts Run Free. Romeo and Juliet, the soundtrack with Baz Luhrmann. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. The film uh, went up for Oscars and the, the soundtrack, we went six times platinum. So 
40 million. Um, just a small deal just then. Just a small deal for that album. And they use uh, the film in schools to teach Shakespeare the past 20 years. So every every Valentine's Day and every time it comes to, to learn Shakespeare, that that soundtrack comes out. So I'm very grateful for that. It sounds like your business skills have come off. Well, I'm letting my young heart run free. <laughs> you certainly are. Kim Mazel, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you again and see you again and to uh, spend this time with you. That's the First Lady of House, Kim Mazel. She's also a health fanatic and is currently filming At Home with Kim Mazel, a TV series for Sky in the UK. My second guest on today's pod was born Otis Miles Jr. in 1941 in Texas. And such was his interest in music as a teenager, he put together several singing groups, including the Siberians, the El Domingos, and the Distance. Success was limited, but his break came when he received an offer from Motown Records chief Barry Gordy. And in March 1961, the band signed to the Motown label as The Temptations. Otis joined me on the line from L.A. and I asked him how he felt now The Temptations were in their 60th year. Well, I'm still having fun with it, even though we started, you know, 60 years ago. Uh, it's still a fun ride, even with the uh, ups and downs and whatever that's what life can be. But I'm still enjoying it and I'm very blessed, I thank God, to be able to say we've been around uh, almost 60 years. And when you look back to when you started, could you possibly have imagined that 60 years on, you'd still be recording and touring as you are now? And obviously, you know, you're, you're not 25 anymore, but you're still obviously a bundle of energy. Yeah, well, the key to being able to do what we have to do when we perform is to get that rest. You know, I try and get that rest, and uh, I don't do all that partying like I used to do, you know. So I'm more subtle and uh, take it as a... Uh, uh, to be in good shape, you know, because uh, that's what our fans look for us to, to be, you know, from when we come out there being uh, known for what we do. Sure. Do you um, eat carefully and do you exercise to keep yourself in good shape? Yeah, I go to the gym every now and then, yes. And I watch what I eat and then I just try and, uh, you know, like now I'm just sitting here resting, reading and watching television. The Temptations have planned to tour the UK, and if they do, they'll be sharing the stage with the Four Tops. Yeah, the Tops and the Tops have been working together since really since the 60s, you know, and it increased more in 1983 when we did the Motown 25, you know, so uh, the Tops and us have been doing it for a long time. So, Otis, let's turn to My Girl, which I think is an historic song because obviously it was the first time you got a US number one, and it was also produced by members of the Miracles, and the song has been preserved in the National Recording Registry, the Library of Congress, as being culturally significant. We had no inclination that it would be uh, such a love and popular song 60 years later. So, uh, no, just one of those things, it's... Uh, we still enjoy it because when they hear their first bass part, the audience goes crazy. So uh, it's still wonderful uh, to do a song that has become so iconic in its own right. Private Lives with Paul Robinson. And my guest on Private Lives is Otis Williams from The Temptations. I asked him to take us back to his musical awakening in his teenage years. I became interested in music uh, when I was in Texas, but it really became... Uh, uh, very, very important to me when uh, we moved to Detroit in the year of 1951. And that's when rock and roll was really beginning to take off. And all the great songs at that time, you know, was being played. So it left a very definite, uh, positive influence of that's what I want to do, you know, is to sing, make records, and hopefully have some hits. 
And with those rock and roll stars, I mean, who were you listening to and which songs particularly, you know, really affected you? Well, you know, growing up, uh, I first started off in Texas listening to the great gospel singers. And then after we moved to Detroit, that's when I started listening to the Chuck Berries and uh, the Nat King Coles and, uh, uh, you know, Lou Richard and a lot of those great rock and roll shows and, you know, great vocal groups that were coming along during the early 50s. And so that's when I really became interested because then they were having uh, rock and roll shows to come to Detroit, Michigan, to the Fox Theater. And when I started going to that, I really said, that's what I want to do with me. Yeah, we had a, a nice regional hit uh, called uh, Come On by Otis Williams at the Distance. And uh, we had signed with this small label, uh, Northern Records, which uh, the owner was Janet May Matthews. And uh, so that was our first uh, encounter of having a little light hit. We signed with Motown in 1961, um, and uh, that's when things really started to take off. You had the band The Elgins, and, and reputedly Barry Gordy wanted The Elgins' name, and so he, he took The Elgins' name from you, effectively. No, no, it was another group called The Elgins, you know, and at the time we didn't know, uh, I don't think that The Elgins that I'm talking about was with Motown, because we were one of the one of the first groups to sign with Motown. But uh, no, uh, we just tossed around names after we found out there was another group called Elgins. That's how the Temptations came about. And what was it like getting that call from Barry Gordy? How was that sort of first encounter for you with him? Because he's obviously, you know, become a, a legendary, legendary name in music, as are you. Well, back in those days, we used to do record hops. <clears throat> and Barry was a known songwriter at that time, and he was out with Smoke and the Miracles, and he saw my group, the Otis Williams in the distance, and he liked the record that we had out, which was named Come On. And uh, he asked me uh, to come see him if we should leave the label that we were with. And that was like 61. Uh, and uh, so we, after we became disenchanted with the little label that we were with, I called Mr. Gordy, and uh, he said, come on over and talk to Mr. Uh, Mickey Stevens, who was our A&R man. And uh, history was made when we came over with Motown in and, and, uh, 1961 and signed the contract. We were there until Motown slowly started to dissolve. This is Private Lives on East London Radio. I'm Paul Robinson, and it's the story of the Temptations. I asked Otis Williams what it was like working at Motown in those early days. Well, it was so early. You know, We didn't know Motown was going to become the, the major factor of the uh, noted label that you know, at that time, because it was just a bunch of wonderful, talented people together trying to do something wonderful, and as fate and time would have it, uh, things started happening like 62, 63, and 64. By 1964 and 5, 8, all that, 5, 6, 7, and 8, Motown was rolling. But we didn't know initially when we uh, started singing with Motown back in the 60s. We just, it was an upstart company. We wanted to be there because we just as though we could have a hit with uh, him with a coming company. Mm. But we had no idea that it was going to become what it is now for today. Sure, and now, of course, much love throughout the world, as, as are you. ELR on Podcast Radio. My guest on the line from LA is Otis Williams, founder and sole surviving original member of the band. I asked Otis about their successful stage show. Big derivative from my book. Uh, I had a book that came out in 1988. And then 10 years later, 1998, 
the miniseries, which is still very popular, uh, you know, about 20 some odd years later. And behind the uh, miniseries, uh, a couple of years ago, we started with the Ain't Too Proud, and it has been breaking records on Broadway and getting all kind of acclaim of being such a great show that, uh, uh, in fact, we're getting ready to put it on the road uh, this July. It'll start off in Providence, Rhode Island, then it'll go to Detroit. So it'll be coming to England. I, I hope they, uh, within uh, 18 months or two, a year and a half or so from now. Well, that's fantastic news. It's coming to the UK. We really look forward to that. And as you say, 12 Tony nominations, and you won the Tony Award for Best Choreography at the 73rd yeah. Tony Awards. Um, what, what is it about the show? I mean, obviously the music is absolutely central to it. What is it about that uh, Temptation story that really, really excites people and gets them so engaged? Oh, well, it, it tells uh, the in-depth uh, thing about what happened with the Temps. You know, us forming, me getting... Um, Melvin, David, Paul, Eddie, and then, uh, you know, uh, Meter uh, having such a historic uh, sound, you know, <laughs> excuse me, and uh, having a hit after hit after hit. You know, it was great, a great place to be, but we didn't have any idea, you know, that it would be that. But I think when they see the play and you see the part that I, I lose members like David, Eddie, Paul, Melvin, you know, uh, so it's got a touching, real uh, kind of feel to it when you see it in person. It has actually moved people to tears when they see it. Uh, people be sitting around me, even myself, uh, crying or shedding a tear. So it's got a lot of wonderful values uh, other than just the music itself. It shows about the trials and tribulations that we went through. Yeah. And still maintain to be around. Temptation songs really move you. They sort of touch you in the soul, touch you in the heart. Yeah, yeah, well, those hits came along at a very crucial point in time and I guess all of our lives, you know, because the 60s, as I've always said, it was, has been noted as the most tumultuous decade within the last hundred years. And here come all this wonderful music coming out during that crazy time of the Vietnam War and women's live, racial violence and all that stuff. So that music hit a very uh, wonderful chord in people's lives that uh, they could find satisfaction and and uh, allude to a place that uh, they can get away from uh, stress and enjoy life. Let's move forward to Diana Ross. You've done quite a few songs with Diana Ross and the Supremes. How did that connection with Diana Ross come about? Well, back then, those days, we were doing all kind of coupling, you know, so Motown was, you know, experimenting and then putting certain plans together that would help further the Temptations and Supremes uh, career, so you know, it was just something that uh, we were being very industrious as far as trying other songs. And so it was something that companies do go through, well, especially Motown went through, by coupling the Timps and the Supremes and various other artists. But that was just something that, uh, uh, just taking care of business, trying to get maximize as many hits uh, and ride the, the wave of success that uh, the Motown was riding. Well, it certainly worked. We're going to play I'm Going to Make You Love Me with Diana Ross and the Temptations. It was number two in the US, number three in the UK. And I think this song includes uh, a spoken interlude by you, Otis, because you don't often appear on the songs as lead vocalist. You're very much uh, you know, the manager and the leader of the band, but you do do a spoken interlude on this song. How did that come about? Well, yeah, just being experimental, just seeing who would fit best with doing certain parts. And I forgot who came up with the thing. Well, Otis, why don't you speak this? Might have been whoever the producer was. I don't know if it was Frank Wilson uh, at the time, but 
And so it was something experimental that, you know, you try and do the very best you can with whatever product that you're doing and add a freshness and a little difference uh, to it. So, you know, it was that kind of happening. And that partnership, Otis, gave you your next hit. I second that emotion. I think it was a number one record because we uh, highlight that when we would do it. You know, because at the time, the Temptations uh, Supremes had a big hit uh, TV show, uh, TCB, and GIT, so uh, those kind of TV shows. So we tried to ride the crest of what was happening with the TV shows. So I think it that, because I'm Going to Make You Love Me came off of a coupling album, which turned out to be very successful. The group have had many vocalists over the years, including Elbridge Al Bryant, David Ruffin, Dennis Edwards, Smokey Robinson and Eddie Kendricks on that track. I asked Otis Williams why so many singers. Well, I asked this what we wanted to be. We wanted to try and not just be like one. Uh, a lot of groups just had, you know, no, no, nothing against any other group, but we had all these voices in the camp, so we want to maximize on uh, everybody taking a little bit to give us a little bit of distinction and difference. You know, so uh, that's how that came about. And then the producers, you know, they always liked us trying different things because we had so many different lead singers. So just one of those things, filling out process and maximizing uh, what the chips had. And did you fit the vocalist to the song or the other way around? It depends on the producer. You know, whatever the producer would hear, I think I like, like Smokey did, I mean, uh, you know, Smokey did my girl here, David Ruffin. Uh, what Norma did, Ain't Too Proud. Uh, Norman did David Ruffin. Uh, when Smokey did Get Ready here, uh, it was whatever the producer felt would be the best for the song. You've won countless awards and uh, had many million sellers and you have your star on the Hollywood um, Walk of Fame. When you get those awards, that must make you feel really good, Otis. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know, because it was beyond our expectation to be getting a star on Hollywood and all the different achievements that we have, you know, we never imagined that when we started saying so to achieve that. Oh, yeah, it's something special, you know, that will uh, live with us in our hearts and memories forever. Podcast Radio. By now, as I put it to Otis Williams, they'd had a string of hit albums and singles and the hard work was really paying off. Well, you know, it's just a great payoff factor when you have the success that we uh, have had and still have So, uh, like I said, we never imagined we'd be around for 60 years and still enjoying it, you know. So uh, it's just something that I can't even put in words. It's just a blessing, you know, because show business is so fickle that, uh, you know, you could be riding the crest one minute and be down and out uh, the next and never come back again. But we've been blessed to be having highs and lows still here 60 years later. Paul Robinson with The Greatest Guests. On private lives. My guest on the line from LA is Otis Williams, founder and sole surviving original member of the band. I asked him why, as founder, he decided not to be out front as lead vocalist, but to stick to being the group leader. Uh, that was a role that Jeremy Matthews uh, put that on my back, on my shoulders uh, when we were with her. And I look back and say it was just something that was destined to be because I didn't. You know, I didn't hold my hand up and say, well, I'm going to be the group leader. It just happened when Johnny May saw something in me that she said, you be the group leader. And here it is, 60 years later, I guess I'm still it. So just well, one of those things that just happened. Yeah, I mean, you, you've been there since the very beginning and, you know, you're now emblematic yeah. with the band. You know, you've been there the whole time, Otis. 
yeah, yeah. Looking back over 60 years, what was the recipe that gave the group their lasting success? Hard work. There's no shortcut to being successful. Uh, you have to work at it. You have to be very diligent. You have to want it that bad. The understand there's going to be sacrifices, the highs and lows. But there's no shortcut to becoming successful. Uh-uh. That's Otis Williams of The Temptations. And they'll be on tour in the UK next year, 2021, with The Four Tops and Odyssey, with dates including Leeds First Direct Arena on Monday the 4th of October, Manchester Arena Tuesday 5th of October, The O2 London Sunday 10th of October, and Bournemouth International Centre Monday the 11th of October. Tickets are available from the venues or from Ticketline, which is www.ticketline.co.uk, www.ticketline.co.uk, or from the hotline, which is 0844 8899991. Very much after the Olympics, we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford and it's not the Shakespeare one, there's this other place where we've built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks. And then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared and leaving us with, you actually look at it, you go, well, why isn't there a local radio station for East London? And that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully be involved in that. So there's those two reasons. It's like, well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station out here. Let's give it a go, see what happens. It really was just like that. We are the voice of East London, ELR. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Keep listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives soon. We are East London Radio. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Grey Street.